We're going to do now what we do uh, each Sunday. We'll look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, if you hit the Psalms, which is kind of right in the middle of the Bible, and start going right, you'll hit Proverbs, you'll hit Isaiah, and then the next kind of big book you'll hit is Jeremiah. If you go to chapter 29, which is the big black number, uh, we'll start there at verse 1, and, if, and when you found that, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, uh, I will read this passage for us. Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning at verse 1 here. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem and the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, that's a lot of eyes, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie. They are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Uh, prophets, at that time, some false prophets had been saying, you know what, we're going to be out of here one or two years tops. Uh, God's like, yeah, I didn't send those people. Uh, verse 10, this is how we know. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, that is Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this. Uh, Spirit of God, would you now illumine your word to us? Open it up, uh, reveal to us exactly what you want to show us and accomplish Whatever purpose you have for this word in each one of us today, you tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you send it. So come on, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, some of you know I'm a little bit of a uh, cinephile, um, loving uh, movies, supremely above probably reading, I'm just never being a huge reader in life. But because I love movies so much, one of my all-time favorite actors, probably of all time, has got to be Al Pacino. I don't know how many other Pacino 
ites or fans we've got in here. Okay, I'm seeing some nods. By the way, I mentioned this to my wife a few times. Please feel free to nod uh, any kind of thing which gives me any indication that you're alive. It's really weird <laughs> looking at your masked faces. It's, it's weird. It, it's very expressionless. So feel free to nod anything that would help, that would help me a lot. Uh, Pacino is just amazing at, at the way that he just embodies a character. He brings so much emotion and, and passion to his story. Um, I, I love it. I'm, I'm, he's definitely one of the favorites. And, and maybe you already knew already, but when actors are seeking to uh, play various different emotions in, in a scene, they will draw on real-life experiences in order to bring kind of a realism, uh, a heart to that scene by, by conveying a similar emotion that they felt. And I'll always remember an example of this shared in an interview that Al gave once in Vanity Fair magazine about a time when he was a boy rushing home after just having hit his first home run in a baseball game. Major accomplishment for a kid, right? Ran in the front door to share this news only to find out that his grandmother had suddenly passed away. And I remember he said this, he said, that was one of the first times I remember understanding what it meant to feel tension. And not tension, like, uh, but like being stretched, being, being pulled in two different directions at once. And if you think about it, one of the most common factors that you find in pretty much any uh, story or screenplay, as well as any great performance in, on the stage or in film, is tension. Uh, create a gradually increasing tension through higher and higher stakes, uh, inner conflicts, uh, characters with opposing goals that is then result that is then relieved in some way by the end. And man, you've got, you've got the makings right there of a story that is ripe for New York Times bestseller list, uh, Oscar, Tony Award winning performances. Tension is the thing that we love in these stories. But although we love tension in, in our stories and in our films, I don't know anybody that loves it in the myriad of ways that it shows up in our lives. Uh, we, we'd like it to stay out there, thanks very much. Um, whether it provides for great, compelling performances by actors or not, uh, most of us find living in tension ourselves to be incredibly uncomfortable, an exhausting experience that we're ready to move on from. We're ready to move to that whole kind of resolved, figured out stage as quickly as possible, thanks very much. We, we don't like sitting in that place of tension. But... What do you do when that tension isn't easily resolvable? What, what, what do you do when moving on quickly isn't an option? What do you do when, when living between two different extremes and pulled in two different directions is not a choice you get to make, but a reality that you have to live? And I ask the question as we conclude our teaching series this morning through our new vision statement. This, uh, what we called kind of the, the train or, or bus marquee that we've posted, which is describing the destination we believe God is calling us towards as a church over the next three to five years. And, and the, the, the last marker that we've come to at the bottom here, flourishing society. These markers that we believe will help us to know that we are moving in the right direction. I ask that question because what we see in our passage today is that living in the tension between two different extremes is exactly what God called his people to do in the midst of their exile in Babylon. They were called to live in the midst of tension. For on the one side, of course, they, they felt the strong pull towards isolation, 
isolation, to keep themselves from being stained and defiled by their Babylonian captors as much as possible. But then on the other side, they felt the understandable pull and overwhelming pressure towards assimilation, to to surrender their cultural and religious identity and simply just adopt and take on a Babylonian worldview as their own. They're, They're living in the tension of these two sides. But maybe you'd say, well, Interesting, that's, that's wonderful for them. What's that got to do with us? Does this have any relevance to us? And, and yes, it does. Far beyond giving you a biblical history lesson, I believe what we see here in this passage is actually incredibly important, incredibly relevant for us to look at still today. And the reason is, first of all, because of that word used to describe the people, exiles. Exiles, you see, is the term Jeremiah used here to describe the physical reality of God's people living in Babylon. But what you might also know is that exiles is also a term used in the New Testament. Authors like James and Peter to describe the entire church. Exiles is how they describe you and me and and, and everyone in the church around the world. And it's a term in, in both contexts that comes to mean, when you understand it rightly, It means to be resident aliens. That's what the term exiles is describing our reality, to be resident aliens. And we'll dig more deeply into that definition as we get going here, but big picture, what it means is that God's call to his people, then as well as today, is not to isolation or to assimilation, but to incarnation. That that place right in between those two extremes incarnation for the purpose of, as we'll come to see in our passage today, of bringing about flourishing, bringing about flourishing in every city, town, borough, neighborhoods, duplex and dorm that he has sent us to. That's God's purpose for his people, for his church. And in order to just help us see what that looks like, how we can take up that call to be resident aliens as a church together in this city where God has sent us, All I want to do is look at this passage in three simple ways. I want to look at the destructive pull of isolation, the destructive pull of assimilation, and then finally we'll close by looking at following our Prince of Peace. Just those three things. So if you have closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to that passage, Jeremiah 29? Follow along with me as we continue here to work to define and describe in the clearest way possible where it is we're going as a church as well as to better understand each of these markers that are going to help us to know that we're moving in the right direction. But very quickly, just just before we dive into looking at these two different ditches on either side of incarnation, I just want to give you a little bit of quick context. Uh, 597 B.C., that's where we are historically here right now, 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon attack Jerusalem, they conquer it, carry off the people of Israel off into exile. But if you look at verses 1 and 2 of this passage, you'll see they didn't carry off all of the people into Babylon, but only the royal family, the elders, the prophets and priests, and all the skilled skilled tradesmen. Now, why would they do that? Well, the reason, apparently, is that when Babylon captured a nation that had a very strong cultural and religious identity, but also had stuff like knowledge and skills and things that they wanted to make use of, rather than just destroy the place, rather than just like slaughter everyone and burn everything, they would carry off the ruling classes 
as well as the priestly and engineering classes to assimilate them into Babylonian culture while leaving everybody else behind and making that now scuttled, hamstrung nation much more uh, agreeable to domination. They've taken away all the ruling classes, everyone that can build stuff and do anything. So really, they've left the people in this completely helpless place. But hopefully you can see now, given all that, the strong pull that would have been on both sides for the people who are taken away, for the people taken into Babylon, this pull towards isolation and the pull towards assimilation for God's people living there in Babylon. Because on the one hand, in order to maintain their cultural and religious identity, they would have to isolate themselves in in, in every way possible from Babylonian influence, from Babylonian engagement. They, They had to really cut themselves off, live on the outskirts, live in border towns. Uh, uh, and then on the other hand, you've got to think about given the Im- immense pressure that would have been put on them by Babylon, as well as the cost involved in order to carry out that isolation, I don't know, may- maybe the safest and wisest thing would just be to not make waves. Maybe just to simply go along with whatever the Babylonian captors presented them with. Oh, this is what we do now? Okay, we'll do that. Just, just to go along and not make waves. They're, they're being pulled in both these different directions. But as I mentioned a moment ago, exiles, used both here as well as in the New Testament to describe God's people, comes to mean much more than being physically exiled, being removed from your homeland, but that we are to be resident aliens. And I want to just pull that apart for a minute, because resident, resident speaks directly to the pull towards isolation, and alien speaks directly to the pull towards assimilation. So let's just look at each one of these individually. Let's look first of all at what it means to be residents in every place that God has sent us and talk about the destructive pull of isolation. Destructive pull of isolation. So think with me, first of all, what what does it mean to be a resident anywhere? What does it mean to be a resident where where you would would settle down? You would would put down roots, right? Uh, uh, not, Not simply come to a place as a tourist, not someone who just shows up for a few years to kind of just take whatever they want from that place before they move on to something else. People who are setting up residence there. And I know for a number of you in our congregation, this has particular relevance to you because you've just recently become residents of Canada. Congratulations to you. So think about all that that means to be a resident of a place and then apply it here to what, what, what's going on. And if you look at God's instructions now in verse 5 and 6, look with me there, you'll see that becoming a resident is exactly what God is calling the people of Israel to do here in Babylon, in this place of their captivity. They are to build houses and live in them, uh, set up, plant gardens, plant fields and crops and, and eat from them, start families, all these things, all the things you'd expect from someone who's becoming a resident in this place that they're now living. But the thing we've got to keep in mind is where it is that God is calling them to do that, right? This is not some new development just on the outskirts of Jerusalem that God's trying to like, encourage some people to move out into to relieve the congestion in Jerusalem. Like, you know what? It's got great parks. It's close to schools, right near the transit. Like, that, that's not what's going on here. This is enemy territory, a, a place filled with all kinds of strange pagan uh, cultural practices, idol worship. They're, they're, they've been carried over 2,700 kilometers away from their homeland. That's almost the distance from here to Toronto. They've they've just been carried far, far away from anything that they know or are familiar with. And it's one of these places where they're they're coming there as prisoners of war. They're not on a double-decker bus on a sightseeing tour. They are there as prisoners. 
They're given certain freedoms as they live there, but they're, they're prisoners. And I know it's not equivalent, but just, just imagine, for example, God giving these same instructions to Jews living in Nazi Germany or to uh, African slaves working on plantations in the South to say to them, I, I want you to build homes, uh, take up residence in this place, uh, uh, seek the peace of Germany. It would just be like unbelievable that he's asking them to do that. But that's actually why God is telling them to set up residence there. That's why he's called his people to set down roots because of what he says there in verse 7. Look with me. He tells his people, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your, your welfare. Now I'm using English, English Standard Version uh, here, and so that word that you see translated three times as welfare, some of your translations will have listed as prosperity or, or well-being, uh, and, and the good news is that they're, they're all correct, uh, that they're all right interpretations of the actual Hebrew word found in verse 7 as well as verse 11, which is shalom. Shalom, a word that we often have translated in the Bible as peace, but the reality is there's no one single English word that is equivalent for the Hebrew word shalom. The, the word literally translated just means completeness. It means whole. It means entire. And so the idea when that word is used in this context, it means completeness, wholeness, beauty, flourishing in every aspect of life and society where it exists. That's, that's flourishing physically, financially, spiritually, psychologically, like in, in every single way, that's the idea conveyed by shalom. And so God says, you are to seek shalom of Babylon, of the place where you are exiled. And what God is trying to say to his people here is the first way that they'll help bring about that shalom in Babylon, this place of their exile, is by not isolating themselves. Not separating themselves from the culture, but remaining part of it, taking up roots right in the middle of it, and planting themselves in the midst of it as residents. And man, I can almost feel the temperature cool in the room as I say that because on the one hand, there's people who are going to hear this message, maybe you sitting here in this room right now, and you're thinking, what? Excuse me? No, 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 no. Christians, religious people in general, they're, they're pretty much like one of the things that's wrong with the world right now. No, no, that, that, there's no way that Christians taking up residence, becoming embedded in the culture is going to bring about shalom in any sense of this word. No, no, no. Please feel 100% free to isolate yourselves. Thank you. And honestly, I can understand that response. I get it. There, there have been some horrific, deeply damaging injustices committed in the name of the church, in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity. I mean, we've got the Crusades. We, we just finished this first National Truth and Reconciliation holiday. Residential schools, these horrific injustices committed in the name of the church. And listen, I'm not here to, to try to defend that, try to explain that away. No, not all Christians. Like, No, those things happened. They happened, they were wrong, and the church has read in its ledger. It does. But the sad reality is that, on the other hand, there have been periods throughout history, as well as continuing right up until today, where the church has largely agreed that we need to isolate ourselves from culture. They've said, no, no, you're right, we, we do need to isolate ourselves, only not to protect the world from us, but to protect ourselves from the world. 
That, that's, that's why the church has said, well, no, we need to isolate ourselves in order to protect ourselves from the world. In his paper, uh, unpacking what he calls a contextualized gospel theology, uh, Tim Keller describes this all-too-common attitude from the church as cultural withdrawal or cultural war, culture warfare, where he says, quote, we see the culture as so dangerous that all you do is withdraw from it to remain pure, or you see it as so bad that all you do is confront it and denounce it. This is the cultural withdrawal, cultural warfare mindset of the church. But to those who wish Christianity to isolate itself in order to help protect the world, I'd, I'd want to invite you to consider the profound influence for good of Christianity over the course of history in, in places wide-sweeping, everything from education to ethics, from, from uh, science to healthcare to philosophy, from art to astronomy to politics, all these different areas where Christianity has had a profound, profound shaping influence on, on all of those things even existing that we wouldn't even have without the influence of the church. So the, the reality is that the church has its presence in the world, both as an organization as well as the individuals who make it up, has been a massive influence for good. It has, in many ways, brought about God's shalom to the world, even in spite of our many faults and failings. But to those of you who would want Christianity to isolate itself in order to protect itself from the world, if you're on that other side, I want to invite you to yeah, think about those same realities historically that we talked about, the contributions that the church has brought. brought. Like, we need to consider that as well. But also to remember our reason for even existing as a church. The reason we're here is based on the commissioning of the one who made us kingdom citizens to begin with. A commission to go and make disciples of all nations, to be witnesses of his to the ends of the earth. That's what he's called us to do. It will be all but impossible all but impossible to carry out any part of that commission. All but impossible to, to bring about anything like flourishing to our city and world if we see the people that we've been called to take up residence among, the people that we've been called to be ministers of gospel renewal as enemies to be defeated or as unclean sinners that we need to protect ourselves from. We, we, we can't, can't do it. We can't be that influence if, if we're shutting ourselves off from those people and not taking up residence among them. That's where the influence uh, for good to bring shalom takes place, which means whether you see it as protecting the world from the church or protecting the, world, protecting the church from the world, to isolate ourselves is ultimately destructive. And it brings about the opposite of shalom for us to do it. But as I said, exiles... To be exiles doesn't just mean to be residents, it means to be resident aliens. So where residence speaks to the pull towards isolation, aliens now speaks to the pull that we also feel towards assimilation. So let's look next here at the destructive pull of assimilation. Destructive pull of assimilation. And of course, by aliens, yes, I mean nothing, anything like extraterrestrials, guys with you know, glowing red fingers telling you to phone home. I'm talking about what... First of all, maybe the Apostle Peter said in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 when he wrote, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, that is, sojourners and exiles in the world, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That is, we are supposed to be 
alien. We are supposed to be a distinct people as God's people. That's the other side of, of what we've been called to as exiles. And so as it relates to being aliens, this is exactly why, despite telling his people to become residents, to put down roots in Babylon, God also tells his people in verse 10 this. Look there with me. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, that is, back to Jerusalem. Which is ultimately what God is saying there is, yes, I want you to make this place your home. I want you to take up residence there. But at the same time, never lose sight of the reality that Babylon is not your true home. Babylon is not your ultimate or forever home. You are still citizens of another country. To hold those things in tension. And the reason it was important for God to tell them this was because beyond assimilation being the expressed goal of the Babylonians themselves when they'd carry these people away of the upper and middle classes of Israel to Babylon, assimilation was also the daily pull on God's people regardless of any outside influence whatsoever. We see that evidenced by the fact that when God is faithful, 70 years later, he brings the people back to Jerusalem. <clears throat> we see there were people who decided to still remain and not return. They were kind of like, no, I kind of like it here. Which means, just as bringing about shalom in Babylon would not be brought about by God's people isolating or separating themselves from culture, neither would it be brought about by God's people assimilating to the Babylonian culture. They needed to not assimilate as well in order to bring about shalom there. And I think it's pretty clear as we think about how this applies to today, we can see <clears throat> like the exact almost one-to-one -one relevance of what we're looking at here as it relates to being exiles in a culture. There's no question. Today ourselves, there are powerful forces in the world today whose desire, if they can't shut us up, make the church go away into isolation, is to pressure us to assimilate to the dominant cultural values and views of the world today. That, that's, that's, that outside pressure is there on us as well. But man, can we just be honest and acknowledge, like well beyond any outside pressure, the majority of us willingly surrender our distinctiveness. We assimilate to the culture around us without any outside help required. Why? Well, because the, the, the freedoms, first of all, the freedoms that are offered are attractive. What's being offered by our culture is, is attractive. It looks good. It tastes good. It's good in so many ways in the short term anyway. And so we're drawn in by the seemingly cost-free, consequence-free nature of what the world is offering around us. That, that is attractive. There's a reason why we're drawn towards that. But I think we also do that. We, we give up our distinctiveness because maintaining your distinctiveness is hard. It's not an easy thing. It's difficult in the sweeping tide of movement going this direction to, to, to try to keep moving this direction. That's hard. It's also inconvenient. It's, it's awkward. It's unpopular a lot of times to be an alien in all kinds of different situations. Maybe not from moment to moment to do that, but certainly consistently over the long haul. And remember, that's what these people were called to here in Babylon. Not, not a couple of months, not one or two years. Seventy years they were to be there, to be these resident aliens there. To be consistent over the long haul of being alien and distinct in our presence, it's, it's difficult. 
In that same paper, Unpacking a Contextualized Gospel Theology, Keller describes this equally strong pull on the other side as over-accommodation. Over-accommodation where, quote, you so accommodate and adapt to your culture that you no longer challenge it. Your only goal is to become attractive and accepted by people in the culture, and you will change anything in your message or ministry to achieve that acceptance, end quote. And there's plenty of examples of that, plenty of examples of over-accommodation in our world today from individuals to entire denominations, where either as a result of pressure or just convenience have surrendered everything but the veneer of their alien distinctiveness as God's people. The problem with that, as we said a moment ago, is that to be residents who are also alien is essential if we're ever going to bring about God's shalom to our city and world. We need both. We need to be residents, present, but we also need to maintain that alien distinctiveness. And I know us, and I get it, assimilation, accommodation, it feels like to do that, it feels like we're making the church more attractive to to the culture. Look, look, we're, we're, we're cool, we're just like you. We do things like you. Uh, uh, we, we try to make the message of the gospel more, like, less offensive to people. Oh, no, no, it's just nothing wrong. Nothing needs to change. Just whatever. Uh, and we try to make it more palatable. And yet what God is saying to his people then and today is this. In giving into the pull to assimilation, we no longer possess anything as the church that is distinctive to offer as a plausible and attractive alternative to what the world is already experiencing. We no longer have anything to offer them as an alternative if we give up our alien distinctiveness. In that same paper, Keller says it this way, for a non-Christian to walk into an isolating church, they'll be hopelessly and needlessly offended. But for them to walk into an assimilating church, they'll be hopelessly confused. Like, what do you actually believe? That's anything different than what I already believe. So think about it, as far as the world knows, the gospel message that we keep talking about is just one more self-help strategy among many. Jesus is just one more moral teacher among thousands of others. And yet what they desperately need to see from the church, from us, in maintaining our alien distinctiveness, is that that's something more. That that's something unreachable, that X factor, whatever it is, that they're still searching for, that they've been unable to to reach and grasp, no matter how much stuff, no matter how much approval they gain, uh, no matter how much the relationships and awards they've accumulated, they need to see that it's actually possible to find that, that something that's missing in a relationship with Jesus. Some of the ways that this might look like, they, they need to see, for instance, that as amazing as sex is, As amazing as that is, there's something entirely unique and distinctively attractive about the safety and security for your heart, for for that core private place of yours that you offer to someone else that's enjoyed within a covenant, committed marriage relationship as God intended it. There's something unique and distinct about that. That that is as great as marriage and beautiful as marriage is, there's something entirely unique and distinctively attractive about covenant commitment to another person that is not discarded the moment you're no longer meeting that person's needs anymore, the moment you're no longer attractive enough, no longer making enough money, no longer cool enough, whatever it is, that's not just discarded. They need to see that distinct difference that's alien to our current culture, that is incredible as likes are. As incredible as the acceptance and approval of others is, there's something entirely unique 
and distinctively attractive about the freedom and the grounded confidence that's available when the thirst for acceptance is already fully satisfied in a relationship with one by whom we are fully known and fully loved. I no longer need to seek to grasp at that from other people because I've already got it fully met in a relationship with Jesus. And these are just a couple of them. This, this is just the tip of the iceberg of, of, as it relates to bringing shalom, bringing flourishing that God wants us to demonstrate and to bring to every aspect of our city and world. Which means, just as we saw isolation is ultimately destructive to bringing shalom, so too is assimilation and the loss of our alien distinctiveness also destructive to bringing those two things. And maybe this all sounds impossibly hard. It's just like, I don't know, that feels like way too much. It feels like God was asking way too much of his people back then, and he's asking way too much of us today. It's just, it's, it's too much. And yet, listen, I believe this is absolutely possible for us because we've been called to seek the flourishing of our city, not, not forging ahead blindly, not trying to feel our way on our own, but following our Prince of Peace. Following our Prince of Peace, and I'll close with this. Maybe you already knew that uh, prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 9, a passage we often read at Christmas, one of the things that was prophesied about Jesus, who he would be when he came, was the Prince of Peace. And peace is that exact same word, shalom. So Jesus is the one who rules over and who comes with the purpose of bringing peace, which brings flourishing in all these different ways that we just described. He's bringing shalom. That was his purpose in coming. And maybe you'll also know that the big theological word that we use to describe Jesus becoming a resident alien and bringing shalom to us is incarnation. That's the word that we use to describe that reality. So the first reason I believe that it's possible for us to incarnate ourselves, to, to, to actually live as resident aliens in our city and world is because we follow the example of one who's already gone before us and done it, shown us what it looks like. That is, we are understanding that rather than Isolation or assimilation, what God has called his people to in every generation is to live in the tension in between of incarnation. But I also believe it's possible, not only because we're following our Savior and Jesus' example of where he went, but because, as we see in verse 11, look with me there, we're also going and incarnating ourselves where it is that we have been sent by Jesus. In verse 11, I don't know, I'm... If you've been in church for a while, you've surely heard this verse before. Verse 11 is one of those classic Old Testament texts that shows up on mugs and t-shirts and, and nature photography in Christian bookstores uh, all over the place. And this was actually the text that was uh, spoken on at Sarah and I's wedding. But the point, as well as the, the good news of verse 11, as it relates to everything that we've been looking at today, why I think this is possible is because... This verse takes away the need for everything to always feel at peace. It takes away the, the need for the circumstances of our lives to always be peaceful. Why? Because now, no matter what's going on around us, no matter how desperate or dire the circumstances seem for us as we try to live as resident aliens, as we try to live as exiles, we can know we are safely within the good purposes and plans of God. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your shalom, not to harm you. How many of you in your own lives right now today in this moment need to hear God speak that promise over you? I know the plans I have for you. This is not random 
what's going on. I know the plans that I have for you, and they're good. Because think about it, being carried thousands of miles away from their homeland to Babylon by social forces of the conquering kings and kingdoms, that must have been terrifying. It must have been sad. It must have been incredibly brutal, not peaceful at all, and uncomfortable for God's people to say nothing of the infinitely more difficult experience of Jesus' incarnation. And yet as verse 4 and verse 7 clearly indicate, those forces were operating under the divine control and direction of God. Those are my social forces, God's saying. Yes, you were brought by Nebuchadnezzar and the king and, and the armies of Babylon, but he, as he keeps saying again and again, I sent you into Babylon. I sent you. Those are my social forces. And yet I know, even in spite of all that we've looked at and all that we've covered here, uh, the, the question on many of your minds has still got to be, yeah, but why? 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 Why should we do this? Why would I want to bring peace, shalom, to our city and world? The isolationist looks at all this and says, why would I want to bring God's shalom to the world? They don't care anything about God, so just let them blow themselves up. At least we're protected. The assimilationist looks at all that we've looked at today and says, why would I need to bring God's shalom to the world? It's already a pretty great place. But it's only the incarnationist with the heart and the mind of Christ that sees the purpose and the plan of God and the call to seek the shalom of the city to pray for its flourishing because they know, first of all, that's been the plan for God's people from the beginning, from when God's people were first formed. Remember, Abraham and God says, I'm going to make you into a nation. I will bless you. And then what does he say? Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The blessing of God, the peace, the shalom of God coming through his people. That's the, been the plan of God from the beginning. The incarnationist sees that good plan of God. And they also know that the only reason we know and experience anything of God's shalom ourselves is because of Jesus, the, the missional, sacrificial heart of God to first send Jesus to incarnate into the world. That's the only reason we even know God's shalom ourselves to begin with. So there it is. As a people, continually being renewed by the gospel, a people who are in process. We will be ministers of gospel renewal in our city and world that brings about personal conversion, strengthened relationships, authentic community, and as we looked at today, a flourishing society. That's where we're going. That's what we've decided on together and believe that God has led us to. That's our next stop of where we're headed. And it's where we believe that God has called us specifically to as a church here, and it's a vision that we are now accountable to. As we've set up that marquee and he said this is where we're going, that's the destination we're now accountable to head towards, and we need to hold each other accountable to that. But yes, although this is the conclusion of this series today, no, sorry, this is not the last time you're going to hear about this vision, uh, but nor should it be, right? Because, listen, if all this was about was like putting a poster up on the wall, stringing a few sentences together that we could try to memorize uh, to make ourselves feel like, ah, you know what, we, we've got a vision now. And not a vision that we actually try to live out day by day. Not, not, not a guide for all of our decision-making as a church. We've said this is where we're going. Does that line up with where we're, what we're deciding here? That doesn't, we don't give everything we have in order to reach, 
then this, is, this whole thing is just meaningless, actually. It's been a wasted investment of the last three years. But if by God's grace we keep this destination ever before us, both individually as well as collectively as a church, and pursue it by God's grace with everything we have, I honestly believe we will see each of these markers showing up again and again. We'll see them all over the place. We'll see them happening more and more. And we'll see the mission that God has given to every one of his churches lived out and taken up exactly as God intended for us specifically in this time and this exact place where he sent us to be resident aliens, to bring about the flourishing of this city. Amen.